Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thanks for listening as together we begin another week of shelter in place, which for most of us means being at home. The Atlantic contemporary believes home is where the art is. That's the name of a virtual tour which goes behind the scenes of some of Atlanta's best art collections. Museum director Veronica Kassenick will tell us more about the contemporary's online offerings. The White House is our nation's home. Chef Roland Mesnier was the official pastry chef there for five U.S. presidents. We'll hear about his exquisite creations, along with some inside scoops on which commander-in-chief had the strongest sweet tooth. First, at home, with a favorite Atlanta celebrity chef. With shelter in place, we can no longer accept dinner invitations, but Alton Brown and Elizabeth Ingram are welcoming you into their home via YouTube with two ever-so-cleverly titled series, Pantry Raid and Quarantine Kitchen. Alton, Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Let's talk about Quarantine Kitchen, and I do love the spelling. Whose idea was it to spell kitchen like quiche with a Q? That was probably me. Him, because that was I, probably me. I had nothing initially. He was like, and we're on live. <laughs> Surprise. I Yeah, went. that's that's how that started. There was no premeditation. So I think I probably made up the the cue for kitchen uh, after the fact. That sounds like something we I call would it do. QQ. Yeah, QQ, double Q. I was like, yeah, that, that, that didn't really she's, just happen, she's, did it? She's not lying. One one night we were making dinner and it was a Tuesday night about seven o'clock. And I was like, let's, hey, let's cook, let's do this uh, online live. And so we just like started it. And by the time we were done, I don't know, like three thousand people watching and then I will do it again next week. And then pretty soon it became, it kind of became a thing. No, I don't want to know the numbers. I don't. I tell her the numbers no. sometimes. <laughs> why wouldn't you want to know? There are thousands of fans following Exactly. You. That's why. I don't, I just, because I'm not an act, I'm a behind the scenes person. And if I have any idea that there's lots of other eyeballs on the other side of the phone, I don't. Sometimes I don't want to know either. <laughs> well, the way you look into the phone doesn't, indicate that you have any shyness about it. And Elizabeth, I have to commend you for being confident enough to go makeupless. Oh, <laughs> we, we had a People magazine shoot and they made me put makeup on and I felt like I was in clown face. I mean, I <laughs> like, can, I can't even talk. I can't, I have all this makeup on. And he's like, you have like no makeup on. <laughs> it was like, they touched her with a brush. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't make up. She, sure. that, that's. So that doesn't really take that much courage for her because that's just her every day. Well, viewers certainly appreciate how casual you are. How does being at home 
change the vibe for you, cooking from home versus the usual staged shows? You know, I, I come from a world where everything is very um, staged and written and premeditated. Um, and this is completely, we don't, we don't have any idea what we're doing when we start. So it's actually kind of comforting in a way because we have no pretense of, it's like, you know, there's stuff in the sink. Okay. There's stuff in the sink. This is the way people live. And I think that we're just for some bizarre sociopathic reason, <laughs> completely fine with letting everybody see what that really is. You know, food can be such an intimidating thing and cooking can be an intimidating thing. And I think that what, what we wanted to do, especially during this time when we're all in lockdown basically is to say, you know what, we're actually all pretty much the same this way. And we're all just trying to get dinner on the table and things have been crazy and the place is sometimes a wreck. Um, so for the cook, the cooking portion, you know, it, it's, it's actually just uh, fun. Uh, Elizabeth and I don't actually get to cook together that often. I tend to commandeer the, the kitchen. And so this has been a, a nice break from my usual habits. So it's therapeutic for the two of you, and it's very therapeutic for viewers because it's so reassuring, that casual vibe. I love it how you've walked around the loft, which you very artfully designed, Elizabeth. Locating the missing kimchi was an exciting <laughs> moment. Would, would you talk about that for anyone who has not seen that episode? The only thing we had premeditated two weeks ago was that we were going to make this uh, kimchi fried rice with kimchi that we had made at uh, my test kitchen that we're going to be using on a Good Eats episode. We've been testing rice cookers, and so there's like, a lot of rice hanging around because I, I didn't want to throw it out because yeah. it's just sinful to throw out that much food. And everybody at the office, I mean, there's hardly anybody there, so there's nobody to take food. And so we were going to make this kimchi fried rice, and I brought home the kimchi, and then like right when we started the show, I'm like, I have no freaking idea where that kimchi is. No <laughs> idea where the kimchi is. And we spent all days. real time. Was yeah, real that was time. all in real time. I was, was like, like, where did, did you move the, no, where did you, and then the show is over, and as soon as we were done and signed off, Elizabeth was like, I'm going to go find that kimchi, <laughs> and like, we go through our cars, we go through the house, and then finally, uh, like two days ago, we, we found the kimchi, and indeed, I had put it, obviously, someplace that food had no business being, <laughs> and that's me, that's very me. It was among your globes. Yeah. Yes. The normal place. The normal place on top of the refrigerator behind a globe. Do you think that quarantine kitchen could continue after quarantine? Well, the the fans certainly seem to hope so. Of all the replies we get or the, the messages that we get via YouTube, and there are a lot of them, probably one out of every five um, is someone saying, please keep doing this. And I could see us doing it mostly because it's a lot of fun for us. We've gotten to where we kind of look forward to it. And we're, we're, we're spending more time together during the week, you know, practicing music and stuff so that we can do songs on, on the show every, every couple of weeks. So maybe we will. I think that, you know, also culturally, we're, we're going to be in a kind of cultural quarantine for a really long time, even, even after things officially open up. And I think that um, the kind of entertainment uh, that's come out of, of the situation, which is that everybody's been doing their shows from home, may have created some permanent changes in, in what we expect from entertainment, or at least what we'll accept from entertainment. So yeah, I think, I think that we'll keep doing it as long as we enjoy doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. Because the first time we did it, there was nobody watching. And probably by the last time we do it, nobody will be watching. <laughs> but, but we'll have fun and we'll get dinner. Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not an entertainer. We have to not do that. Yeah, I you, can't. Every time I try to make a plan, okay, well, this time let's, she's like, no, 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 no. No scripts, no planning, no production. Yeah, if I have um, to hit a mark, I'm in trouble. Yeah, we're in. Well, yeah. Yeah, I get that. So is, is, we have to keep it, we have to keep it completely unpremeditated. It's natural. And that's what people are responding to so favorably. Elizabeth, I saw the chat on the side. The, the running comments, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the running comments were, hey, where has Elizabeth been, you know, keep her? It's because of how perfectly natural this is with the two of you at home. I wonder how Pantry Raid compares. That's your other series. 
experience? Oh, well, that's that's really just a series of videos that I put together at my office, uh, in my test kitchen with one one other guy uh, who runs the camera with for the me. With a mask on. Well, yeah, with a mask on. Um, and, and those have been just about uh, giving people some simple things to do with food. Um, and, and we literally just started doing those, and we're going to be doing some more next week because you know, the kitchen's empty right now. Um, and, you know, and, and we're, we're not in production. So I, I really wanted to just be able to put something up on YouTube that that would would make sense for people. And we, we started with a hand washing video. And when so many people watch that, we decided, well, what the heck, we'll cook some food too. Just simple things um, that that people could really, uh, you know, do and, and, and identify with. So that's a completely different thing. I mean, that's that's relatively produced in as much as that we have to plan what we're doing and you know there's an actual cameraman instead of me holding a phone thank goodness returning to your kitchen elizabeth you're learning the bass when can we look forward to the musical portion of quarantine kitchen we tend to do a song every every two weeks yeah. Um, and, and the first time we did it, we thought, okay, we're going to get one shot at this and everybody's going to hate it and we won't do it again. And I don't even remember why we decided to do it. We did a, a Warren Zevon cover of, of a song called Splendid Isolation, which we thought was very apropos. And I can't remember where we, one of us must have dared the other. I, we just had to have. It had to have been me. There's no way you would have dared me because I literally have just started learning the bass. My poor bass teacher is like, oh my God, my students like, you know, going up in front of 100,000 people. He's more nervous than I. So, you, know, so you, must have, you must have dared me. I did. You did. You yeah, dared me. there's no way that I. Yeah. And so we did it once and I told Elizabeth, I said, okay, listen, we're going to get chewed to bits. People are going to hate this. The comments are going to be savage. Just be ready for that and just ignore them. I don't read the comments. Anymore. And then the comments were all like, that was awesome. <laughs> do more songs. And we're like, are you serious? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, do more songs. And so we waited two weeks and then we did uh, our, our version of That's Life uh, from, yeah. uh, from Sinatra and, um, and people still like it. So I loved it. We'll, we'll be doing uh, something completely different. And now uh, for something completely different. Completely different next week. And, uh, and Elizabeth will be singing lead this time. So, yeah. um, Which is insanity. <laughs> no, yeah. you've got a pretty voice. Hmm. Um, but you know, that's the way it goes. I loved version one of the theme song. Has <laughs> there been any decision? No, what we're going to do is we're going to, we have about uh, five or six different versions of it that uh, uh, my associate, um, keyboardist uh, performed, and so we're going to play a different one every week, and then we're going to we're going to see what the uh, what the audience says. It's, it's hard because he's it's used hard. to writing for you, and and Alton and I are, we I think we yin and yang pretty well, like just in every way, <laughs> very different people, and so we need the more punk rock version for me. Well, we have a punk rock. We have we have a, a Latin okay. version. We have an oompa band version. We have a punk rock <laughs> version. We have no, we have multiple. I, I haven't let you hear them. No. Elizabeth hadn't heard hasn't heard them yet. She's only heard the one. What if you used each of them and it had a corresponding recipe, like with the umpapa version, if you had sauerbraten or something German? That's, See, that's, that's premeditating, though. I mean, we 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 would have to like. No, we do. We, do we obviously do have somewhat of a plan. We could we could we could do we could we could. That's a good we idea. We could do that. Well, I we had dared people. I had dared people to sort of keep it up to talk. We haven't done it though but talk in accents and then like a British accent all day, right? Then they cook, you know, bangers and mash that evening or like you're saying, a German accent, then they go into cook, we you will, know, schnitzel or something. And, and then we will do Romanian. We will do Romanian. We will do Romanian. We'll have blood pudding and whatever you have with that in Romanian. Yeah, so that was a plan. So we could do that. So we'll have a musical style of our theme. We'll point to the, to the food. Okay. I think that's a good idea. It does, it does take a really long time to take, make sour broth, though. But we make something else. We can make schnitzel. Yeah. Schnitzel would be delicious. So what would punk rock be? Punk rock would be like a cold a hot dog of, and a cigarette. Exactly. <laughs> a cold can of SpaghettiOs. Cold can of SpaghettiOs. <laughs> and a cigarette. I love it. We'll, cigarette. we'll do that, yeah. <laughs> what recipes, since you have been doing this, have you heard the most about? Well, first off, the big discovery for me has been my wife is an exceptional cook. And the truth is, I actually didn't know that. Um, I, I mean, she cooked, uh -uh. But, I, but she didn't cook much because I hogged the kitchen. And it's a little kitchen and I hogged the kitchen and she lets me hog the kitchen. And then we're like, well, you, you need to make a dish. Well, I'm going to be working on this. So you do this. And like the first week, she makes this, this roasted carrot. 
hummus hummus thing. I and have it was more like, time on my hands now because I'm not out and about. Because she's not know, out working doing, yeah. as much. Yeah. And so she makes this stuff and I'm like, did you write this down? This is phenomenal. <laughs> she never writes down anything. So nothing that she makes do we get to have again because <laughs> she never makes anything the same very way. Very close approximation. And so everything that she's made on the show has been like really good. Oh, yeah, with the tahini in the roasted carrots. Well, and, and she, well, she's made two hummuses now. She made a beet one last night that was um, exceptional. What was it? You made one other thing. I'm trying to think of what it was. The pesto Oh, the pesto. Um, the pesto potatoes. You made cilantro. She made the cilantro pesto that I thought was, thought was going to be horrible. horrible. Huh. I thought it was going to be disgusting. And it was like, and she put some in my mouth, and it's like, that's better than any pesto I've ever made in my life. That's saying a lot because you had me at pesto. Well, and I'm not a super big cilantro fan. I mean, I'm an okay cilantro fan, but I thought, yeah, cilantro, I'm not going to, and it was fantastic. So I, she needs to be doing a lot more of the cooking. That's all I'm going to say. Do you realize what you've gotten yourself into with this, Elizabeth? Um, no, I'm trying not to think about it. I literally... <laughs> If I, I, yeah, no. I told her, I told her, I was like, you go down this road, just know yeah. that there's, uh, it's tough to go back and, uh, and things aren't, the, things aren't the same. When all this is over and you go out in the world and somebody asks you for your, your first autograph. I have been, I have been already recognized. You have. Well, yeah. there you go. With a mask over your little face? Oh, no, not, no, before that, actually. I mean, I'm 54 years old. Like, it's like, I'm, this is all, you know, I've already lived a life, right? I mean, well, so get ready, get ready for sudden, another one. Get ready for another second, one. Because, um, the second or third or fourth or fifth act is uh, not one I would have anticipated. We're, we're, we're always uh, really interested when we see uh, people comparing us as a couple to other showbiz couples. Uh, there, there have been a lot of uh, George Burns, Gracie Allen, the kind of, uh, <laughs> and there have been more than a few Honeymooners references. Like but we don't like that one because I'd, I've never, I wouldn't bang zoom you to the moon. So wh whatever it is that we, we have between us, uh, people seem to um, see some of themselves or some of their own relationships in us. And I think that that's the best kind of showbiz couple is one that makes you feel more normal. Well, I think that there's nothing normal about your extraordinary culinary ability, but you sure have been making a lot of people happy with Quarantine Kitchen and Pantry Raid. In a, in a way, Quarantine Kitchen is the, the, the big kind of shock of, of my life at this current time. When I thought, well, you know, at this point in my career, you know, how many new things are going to surprise me from out of nowhere? I've kind of been around the block a time or two. And then one night you turn on the, you turn on your camera and, and all of a sudden uh, life's completely different. And, and that's yeah. just a, a, an interesting, um, I guess, side effect of, when well, he looked normal, at me, he goes, normal. he goes, oh, you're funny. I'm like, <laughs> who did you marry? Like, no, but when you see somebody, we, we've never spent time on, on camera before, no. very little. <laughs> and now, I didn't you know, have home I, movies of myself as a kid. No, so well, me either. I had them all destroyed. But, you know, and now we have <laughs> movies of us every week. And, I, and I, we watch them back and I'm like, your timing is really, really good. And your deliveries are really good. You're... You're a classic straight man. I mean, it, it's, it's like an Abbott Costello level kind of thing, except with, with no actual material. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't ask you who's on first, but I, I was hoping to ask you about how the dogs are dealing with all this celebrity. So, well, Scabs, Scabigail is, she's a diva. She's like Lady Gaga in dog. <laughs> How many, <laughs> how many followers does she have on instant? On she's 35,000 35, and that's 000. my, she should have more. That's my, we don't try. Right? We don't try hard. Yeah. No, she has, and I, I mean, you know, you see it, quote unquote, it, she does, she, even she's as a dog, dog. She's she dog. has it. I don't, she does. She's well, dog. the one blue eye and one brown eye is wonderful. That is wonderful. But she just has this other sort of inner zeal that I don't know. But Francis is my, my, I love him. He's Aww. one of he's classic. He's a classic dog. Yeah, my dog is 12, and mm. so I, I relate to Francis a yeah. lot. Scabigail, we'll, we'll go to New York, and, and people will stop us to take pictures of Scabigail. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And people will follow her, and people that follow her on Instagram will, will, will not stop me, but will, will <laughs> want to take a picture of, of the dog, which is just hilarious. Yeah, New York City. Yeah, you know, New York. People aren't paying attention, and then, anyway, so she's... 
She's managing. She's, she's not. She's not. I think she may be a little jealous. She's not engaging with us on the show very well because when we when we do quarantine kitchen, she she goes and gets on the sofa and refuses to have anything to do with us. Yeah, I noticed one moment where you offered Francis some ham, and she didn't come running. You had a fine scabigail. I don't know. She she's. I think she may just be jealous. Um, she thinks she should have her own show and doesn't understand why we're getting the the limelight. Well, it may not be a bad idea. Can we look forward to it? <laughs> you know, if, if, I, if I could get her to talk, uh, you know, maybe she just be like do her eating bone. stuff. Yeah, do a wishbone. Yeah. We'll become a showbiz family. Or it could be like mukbang. Mukbang with her eating. Oh, mukbang with her eating. Just videos of her eating. Because she makes some very interesting sounds when she. Um, yeah, she's part pig. She could be ASMR. The I sounds. don't understand the sound yeah, thing. Yeah, Scabs. she could oh. Or snoring. Snoring. Yeah. Just breathing. I love it. So clearly, clearly, um, uh, quarantine uh, entertainment has gone way downhill. <laughs> we're talking about making videos of snoring dogs. So things is, we're, we're, we're in a bad place. If it is comforting people and bringing them laughter, here's to it. Lisbeth Ingram, Alton Brown, this has been such a delight. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Chef Alton Brown and Elizabeth Ingram. There's more about their YouTube series, Quarantine Kitchen. That's Q-U-I-T-C-H-E-N. On our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, serving just desserts at the White House. You're listening to WABE. Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Have you heard an interview on City Lights you'd like to listen to again or share with a friend? WABE.org slash City Lights is the place to find today's interviews, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at wabe.org slash citylights. And thanks for listening. Former White House pastry chef Roland Mesnier was so creative in the kitchen, he claims to have never served the same dessert twice. That's amazing, considering his tenure spanned from Jimmy Carter to George W. Bush. The French-born chef Mesnier stopped by WABE Last October, while in town for his latest book chronicling the recipes and stories behind many of his exquisite desserts. The basic of most great cooking, even still today, started in France and Europe. There is no doubt about that. And more and more of the American chefs, by the way, have adopted this way of cooking and baking in their establishment. It's not easy to be able to produce great food every single day, even if it's for the people or if it's for the president and the first lady of the United States. Now, for me, that was a real great challenge and a scary one too. Do you think when I took that job and came and do my job at the White House, 
that I was very relaxed and <laughs> and I was a day like any other day. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I can't imagine anything in the White House being relaxed. I knew for whom I was preparing food. And also had some guideline that I set up myself, like no politics in my kitchen. Aha. Although there were politics in the other kitchens, but not my kitchen. Meaning I don't care who was in the Oval Office. The food was prepared the same way for every president. Your technique involves using molds to shape the many elements of your desserts. Would you tell us a bit about the molds? Well, exactly. You know, I wanted to be a different kind of pastry chef for the White House. First of all, any president and first ladies deserve to have the best. And that's who I wanted to be. Nobody else but the best. Regarding if they were Republican or Democrat, that didn't play no role whatsoever. So I said, what can I introduce here that was never seen in the White House? And I remember those molds that used to be made many years ago where the whole hotel, like in New York and other places, when I started to use those molds, I had to find those molds. I had to go to antique sale and stuff to find them. So when Mrs. Reagan saw those molds, she went wild. Because Because they look like works of art. That's what it is. They can be those Uh, creations of yours. Yes. They could be in a painting in the Louvre or the National Gallery. And in fact, we have... One photograph where you picture a dessert you created for a visit of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And Lady Diana, when they, right after they got married. I use the, the peach because they, they were their favorite fruit at the time. And those peaches are molded with one of those molds I'm talking about, okay? And then on the top here, we have the tree plume, which is the code of the coat of arm for Prince Charles. But that was made with a mold that I created myself uh-huh. and that I carved out of wood in the White House carpenter shop. You mentioned now the peach. Yes. The peaches are made of sorbet. Sorbet, yes. And inside the peach you have a pit. A pit that is made of chocolate. Oh, la la, I'm going to yes, eat that Yes, pit. yes, That was really a spectacular... Mrs. Reagan was really pleased with that dessert. I could imagine. And the guests and all so on, you know. I thought it odd when I read that she didn't want you to serve any kind of dessert sauce because she was afraid guests would drip the sauce. I would think that would be something of a constraint for you. How did you feel about was, her telling you that? That was, you know, Mrs. To, to work for Mrs. Reagan, that wasn't easy. Now, I can imagine. Plus, First of all, she was so tiny, I bet she didn't eat many desserts. She, well, her desserts were all the same frame, if you will. Tiny, lot of color, and delicious. And you could move away from that. No chocolate. Oh! <gasps> No chocolate for my husband, the president, which he didn't like that too much. But he didn't like. Oh, he didn't like that she forbade. Yes. Yeah, okay. But don't you worry. I took care of the president. Good. I'm glad. He to got know plenty that. chocolate when she wasn't <laughs> around. You know. And she was afraid he'd drip it on his tie. That was the thing. We had to be careful because you had those ladies come in with expensive dresses. Oh, this is. True. And you know, I built some dessert that were really incredibly tall and so on. And Mrs. Reagan, when she saw those desserts, she said to me, Roland, we can't have that. That's going to fall on the lady's dress. I said, Mrs. Reagan, never in a million years. This has been tested and retested. So she would come and literally grab this dessert and shake it like this. She said, okay, you told me, that's a go, let's do it. And thank God, all through all my year, I never had a dessert falling on anybody's dress. Because that was a huge concern. You had the chance to work with five different presidential administrations. Which chief executive had the biggest sweet tooth? That prize will go for two of them. Ah. 
they will have to share that. President Clinton, very sweet tooth. President Reagan, very sweet tooth. Ah. Now, the, the story with President Clinton, he, he would look at dessert and he would start salivating. <laughs> So uh, you, uh, you may remember when he had a bypass operation. Oh, yes. Just at the time they were opening his library in Arkansas. And I happened to be in town for the opening of the library. And then one of his assistants came to me and said, Roland, why don't you wear your beautiful White House uniform and bring to President Clinton one of his well-liked dessert, the one he really loved, which is a peach and blackberry cobbler. Oh, this is very Southern. You can tell his Arkansas Oh, he roots. loved that, you know. So I said, sure, I'll do that. When he saw me start smiling from here to here, Chef Holland and I asked him, I said, Mr. President, how are you feeling? How is everything? Oh, I'm feeling good now that I see my favorite dessert, he said, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then there was a guy sitting beside him that didn't look at me like he was happy. And I almost wanted to ask him, what, 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 crawl up, what crawl up your pants, man? You don't, <laughs> seem, you don't seem very happy here. This man he was not happy because he said, well, I am the president's doctor. I said, all right, all right, but you can't have another spoon of the cobbler? Let's talk about it. I said, Mr. President, who do you trust most here today? Him or me? He said, you, Roland, you fed me for all these years, and I'm very healthy. There you I'm go. I'm doing good. Is there anything you miss about working at the White House? You began yes. telling us about the yes. pressure. What do you miss? You know, I still miss, like when a big dinner comes up, I still formulate a dessert in my head. Oh. I say, that's what they should have, you know. Yeah. But to please the president and first lady, to me, is the top of my profession. If I was able to put a smile on their face for five minutes or less, I thought my job was well done. Roland Mesnier was the White House pastry chef for five administrations. His latest book is Creating the Sweet World of White House Desserts. After a short break, the Atlanta Contemporary brings its art to you at home. This is WABE Atlanta. With the shutdown of all public spaces, museums have had to pivot to the new reality, offering alternative ways to see what's inside those closed doors. Veronica Kessenek is the executive director of the Atlanta Contemporary. She joins me now via Zoom. Veronica, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When did the Atlanta Contemporary adapt to virtual exhibitions and programming? We anticipated that we were going to close. We kind of could see the writing on the wall and with the closures that were happening in New York and our friends and colleagues at the High Museum, we anticipated that it was happening sooner rather than later. And we closed our doors temporarily on Friday, March 13th, which is, you know, Friday the 13th, such a ominous sounding day. But in the week prior and making those decisions, we actually were transitioning to virtual programming during that week. We used technical videography and things to digitize the exhibition. So that way, when we were closed, we could have the exhibitions all on view. And we did that all kind of on the Thursday, March 12th and Friday, March 13th. Uh, we had an opening for all of our project spaces on Thursday, March 12th, which was extremely well attended. I think everyone was having one last hurrah before we all knew we were going to be in quarantine. And so that Friday, we, we documented those exhibitions and had them up about a week later for viewing kind of as a secondary landing page to our website. It, it took a minute with our IT, but we, we got that up. And then 
our programming, we started as a staff the Monday morning after we closed to start brainstorming about what would digital content look like. Mm. So you had a good start, an early start. Yeah, we, you know, I think one of the things that we've been doing is our programming is pretty defined in terms of what days of the week's things happened. And we're programmed through the end of the fiscal year, which is June 30, and had, you know, obviously already begun programming for FY21 beginning July 1st. So we reached out to partners and again, have been learning in real time how to navigate Zoom and house party and things like that. But we transitioned pretty easily and pretty quickly and just migrated things that would happen in person to a digital platform. What exhibitions are being shown virtually now? So all of them, actually. So The Life and Death of Charles Williams, which opened back in January, kind of end of January, as well as all of the project spaces. So we have our contemporary on-site space curated by Craig Drennan, the exhibition is called The End is Near, and the exhibition title comes from the fact that his studio is at the end of the hall. So, yeah, clarified, right? I'm very (laughs) glad you clarified that. Right. And so that's on view, as well as Foyana Ginn's Every Line is Sentient, Every Dot is Alive, and Lynx's The Road to Life is Narrow and Hard, as well as... uh, the installation of Paul Stephen Benjamin, which has been up since the end of summer. So we have everything on and, and, you know, they're not incredibly long videos, but they're useful and helpful. And one of the reviewers from Hyperallergic, we actually, they had come the week of, of course, the unanticipated yet presumed closure. And once we were able to release the exhibitions virtually, they could do a review of the exhibition, which was great, because then at least people could have some experience of it, as well as experience the review and the, and the criticism related to the exhibition. Now, you also are offering virtual experiences, and the first program to kick off was called Home is Where the Art Is, which was from your personal collection. Would you tell us about your own art collection, Veronica? Absolutely. So the program started because I worked as a commercial gallerist for Faye Gold uh, for many years. And what we do at Atlanta Contemporary is we provide exhibition space for contemporary artists, but outside of the galleries, a lot of works reside permanently in people's homes or in in collections of institutions. So we started this program to cope behind the scenes a few years ago. But when we were talking to some members and thinking about what could we do, I was talking to my development manager, Abby Bullard, and I said, we should relaunch Home is Where the Art Is. And I think when you're gonna ask people to go virtually into their own collections, you kind of have to be the guinea pig. And I thought, we'll just start with mine because, you know, I can do that. So I have a pretty interesting collection. I live in a, in a small townhouse and we had, I think, 35 people RSVP and I think 28 people who attended, which is way more people than would have ever fit in my house to walk around. But my collection ranges from, you know, works acquired from artists that we represented such as when I worked for Faye, such as Melissa Harrington or Joseph Gway or John Folsom, some, some still locally important artists to old school artists like Arrington Henley, who was our neighbor when we were growing up. I have a beautiful Robert Maplethorpe photograph and Doug and Mike Starn photographs. And the recent piece that was acquired was a piece from the Carnegie International when I went up there a year ago by Fruit and Other Things, where the Carnegie had, over its many years, the exhibition was actually not curated at the time. It used to be by submission. And so they had over 10,000 submissions in the history of the Carnegie International. And the curator commissioned Fruit and Other Things to document these titles by painting the titles on a rather standard piece of paper. And then in the space, you could 
see them actively painting it and then they would put them on these frame drying racks around the walls and then they would take them off the wall and if you were in the room they would give them to you so the idea that you know the art was moving yet again outside the walls of an institution so so I'm still buying as well I, I recently acquired a piece by one of our artists that worked with a project space named Coco Hyundai out of Tampa named Thad Kellestat and it's a small sculpture so I think like any of us, we're, we buy what we love and it was fun and unusual to be walking around your house, talking to people that you can't see. But I think that's, that's our new normal a little bit right now. So it seems, but how special to look at your collection. What are some of the experiences for member participation? And I also wondered if there are free activities for non-members as well. Absolutely. Most of the program that we would do on our public campus would be free admission every day, much like we are. And so every single program, with the exception of the Home is Where the Artist, has been free. So we've done things which have been a little bit more, I think, fun and quirky, such as the big list of Extremely Michael's quarantine playlists. So this week we'll be dropping our sixth playlist for listening during our quarantine. We've had our mixologist in resident, uh, Erica Moore, crafting cocktails that people can do at home because we have a cocktail program on Thursdays. We've been doing virtual pop-ups on Fridays, kind of releasing them. Some of them feel like, you know, craft tasks and and projects that you can do with your your children and then we've had continuing education programs with partners and with our artists we did an artist talk with Liliana again and we've done two talks with Discrit one about Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty which is 50 years this year and then uh, another called trend forecasting, which I think, you know, obviously we're in a time where trend forecasting is of the utmost relevance. So, and then we've done movement love. So we're, we're still, uh, we're still programming and, and thinking about ways to provide content that's free and relevant and consequential to our mission and our vision. The next virtual activity features Ariana Kalmniuk the founder of Zappa Lab. The subject seems unusual for an art museum. What can you tell us about her presentation? Ariana was, she's an artist and she makes scent and is an artist who is based in scent. And she's actually been going around and making perfumes and soaps based on spaces. In, in Atlanta. And one of the spaces that she started with uh, is Atlanta Contemporary. And so I believe there are two iterations of perfumes that are what Atlanta Contemporary smells like. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's great. And I mean, for those of you who've been on our campus, there are huge rosemary bushes, both in the front and in the back in the studio artist courtyard. And so rosemary, of course, is a, an underlying scent. And I have to say they, they smell beautiful. I believe she did Mocha GA. I think she's done the high. So we have a relationship with her. And, you know, it's a, it's a very nuanced practice. And there's supplies that would have to be acquired to do this. But it's just something fun and different and experiments with the notion of what art is. You know, it, it's not just traditional works that are hung on walls or sculptures that are placed on pedestals. And I think as we continue to navigate through this new normal, you know, the notion of space and what is public and private and the idea of scent and the idea of memory and loss and all of these different things, it just made sense to reach out to her and see if she would do something for us. No pun intended with making sense. Right. Yes, exactly. And I will say, too, we've also commissioned these artists to do this. So everyone is being compensated for their for their work and for their time. And, you know, in this time of, you know, unprecedented loss of, of work, we're really trying to support our, our artist community. Oh, I applaud you for that. Um, there was an article I was reading this morning about the WPA and how artists 
and sculptors, artists of all kinds, were provided jobs after the Great Depression, and they got to work through the 30s through government jobs. That doesn't seem likely now, so it's up to the likes of you and individuals to provide artists' work. Yeah, artists have such a a way of thinking creatively about problems that are unfathomable or untenable. And, you know, I think, too, that there are a lot of practical skills that a lot of artists have as makers and being able to build things and construct things. So I'm still holding out hope that there would be some sort of government program to support artists in the workforce. But uh, we we've always felt and, and I've always felt that it's it's fundamentally important to support these people and their work and to uh, compensate them in, in whatever way that we can. And we're better for it because we get these ways of comprehending our experiences that are different and that help us build empathy and compassion and understanding. And, and I think we need that now more than ever. Beautifully put. Thinking about the nature of artists, they often work alone. And I wonder about the impact of quarantine on artists. Perhaps shelter in place allows more time to experiment or focus. Have you spoken with artists about self-isolation as an inspiration for creating new work? Well, we haven't necessarily spoken about that. We did have to, obviously, with the shelter-in-place order, close our campus, which then, you know, closes access to the studios that we we subsidize. And and I, I think that the artists moved out, so to speak, and took their practices home. And that's a strange confinement as well, because home is, I think we're all grappling with this, that there's you know, less boundaries and less spaces that you can designate as workspaces and things get muddier. So I'm intrigued by the time that is going to impact these works and, and these people. And and you're right, most artists work in isolation and they they are very much so taking what they see and they experience and, and translating it in some way. And I know from some artists and talking to them that this has been extremely hard and difficult and and tough to navigate. And I know others have found this to be enlightening. At the end of the day, they're people and they have lives and and things to do and children and sometimes not children and dogs and sometimes not dogs. And so everybody's lives have, have been muddied. And I, I think that there might be this great catharsis that's happening or there might be this, as you said, isolated period that could stunt a practice, but I think only time will will tell. I know a lot of writers have had a hard time writing and artists have had a hard time making and and I think it's because we're in this, you know, period of grief and we're trying to understand where we're at. But I'm I'm hoping that as, as we continue to go through this, you know, I don't think we're gonna know how this has impacted us until eighteen months to two years later. Do you see the Atlantic Contemporary integrating virtual experiences into the programming even after shelter-in-place is over? Yes, actually. For example, we had, with our talk this past Saturday, we had a, a person who attended who was in New Orleans. And so I think for us, the notion of audience and engagement is getting redefined. Of course, we can all do this from our living rooms and, you know, the next home is where the art is, which we're, we're confirming doesn't have to be a person who lives in Atlanta because it's virtual. We're trying to figure out what virtual programming looks like after the fact and, and how we can integrate talks so that they live on and, and you know, and, and in some way too, our our next exhibitions that we're, we're confirming and, and releasing because we've had to postpone some things and make, make some tough decisions. We're considering reality that's being tossed out there that we may have to shelter in place again in the fall. 
and what does that look like? And so we're redefining what studio visits look like because so many curators can't go into studios and so they're having to do it virtually via Skype or Zoom. And so can we now anticipate the future and have content that we can produce today or tomorrow? So I think our audiences are going to want it and uh, we're going to provide it for them. Veronica Kasinick, the executive director of the Atlanta Contemporary. There's more about their exhibitions and programming on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 10. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Sheffield Hale, CEO of the Atlanta History Center, to learn more about how history lives in the present. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now available as a podcast, so you can catch us anytime, anywhere. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.